You're listening to Susan Weed presenting Integrated Care with a Cancer Diagnosis at the 2019 Midwest Women's Herbal Conference. Spirit of the Plantsess, come to me in the form of a beautiful dancing green woman. Spirit of the Plantsess, come to me in the form of a beautiful dancing green woman. Eyes fill me with peace. Her dance fills me with peace. Eyes fill me with peace. Her dance fills me with peace. The spirit of the plant says, come to me in the form of a beautiful dancing green woman. Spirit of the plant says, come to me in the form of a beautiful dancing green woman. Her eyes fill me with peace. Her dance fills me with peace. Her eyes fill me with peace. Her dance fills me with peace. I had never heard of Lisa Tiel or heard any of her songs. When I first heard a song by her, I was teaching in Northern Ontario. It was a big conference and Ralph Blum was there and he played uh, White Buffalo Woman, I seek your wisdom, White Buffalo Woman, I seek your grace. And so after the, after, that's how he started. And then afterwards I went to him and I said, I want the tape. <laughs> he says, you can have the tape, but you must come to my room. <laughs> so I went to his room and I left with the tape. <laughs> Many hours later, we carried on for a few years. So <laughs> and and uh, you know how you like really get into to a new music, right? So I'm driving home. It's a long drive from northern, northern Ontario. So when the tape comes to an end, I just push again, again. So I'm, you know, and it's got the spirit of the plants on there. So I get home and I write to Lisa. And I say, this great song in there and I want you to know it's mine. And she writes back this kind of polite, who the fuck are you? <laughs> that you are claiming my song, girl, what? Yeah. <laughs> and two years later, we were invited to co-lead a women's group in Jamaica. And at the end of that time, she said, you're right, it's your song. <laughs> in fact, it's become the song of the herbal community, hasn't it? So we all thank Lisa Tiel for the spirit of the plants. What a beautiful, beautiful song. I have not heard from her in a very long time. I hope that she is still doing well. She is one of the uh, eight herbalists who sing on my CD, It's Time, Goddess Chance. It's time to be the goddess now. Time to be the goddess now. It's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. Time to be the goddess now. It's a new genre, goddess gospel. <laughs> we need some more goddess gospel. Okay, so about five years ago, my daughter said to me, okay, we have to update you. I said, facelift? Hair dye? What are we talking about? Update me. She says, oh, God, no. But writing, it's like, writing is like so 20th century. <laughs> she said, we're going to update you and do video courses. I said, oh, that sounds like fun. You know, we, had a, we have a lot of video under our belts. 
because she's been doing YouTubes right since Monica Jean was virtually born. I mean, the very first YouTube of Dandy, we're making Dandelion and there's Monica Jean like tootling around picking the dandelion flowers. What you don't see is after we did that, she goes and picks every other yellow flowered plant out of the garden. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, it's right. <laughs> So we had, a, had a, a lot of years of doing YouTubes together and knew that we could pull that off. So our first video course uh, was Happy Knees, and that stands in for all joints, all happy joints. And then um, I think that was like maybe oh, uh, four dozen or so videos as that course. And then the next year I said, well, you know, let's be more lavish this year. Let's do a course on adaptogens. And we did a field trip down to Chinatown and we talked to Chinese herbalists. And I think that one was like, oh, maybe 70 videos for the adaptogens course. And um, then I said, well, you know, this next year, the third year, I said, uh, it, my friends are like, Cancer diagnosis, cancer diagnosis, cancer diagnosis, dead of cancer, dead of cancer, cancer diagnosis, dead of cancer. It's like, whoa! So let's do something for all these people. I want to do a, a, what do you do if you get a cancer diagnosis course? And that course is over 100 videos. Because <laughs> there's all, I got a lot to say about that. And then last year we did a video course, which is a companion to the new book. So every time there's a meditation in here, the video course has me reading or speaking that meditation out loud so that you don't have to read it. You can just push play and sit back and listen to it. And we wanted, in the publicity, we wanted to say, you know, Susan Reed, best-selling author, but we thought we better, like, check and see if I was before we said that. <laughs> you know. And, yeah, we, so we went to Amazon, and, like, sure enough, indeed, my books are bestsellers at Amazon. We were very happy to uh, see them there. And... Um, then we also found out that Amazon is already pre-selling this book. Yes. And we said, well, we cannot let Amazon get that jump on us. So we're pre-selling it too, but we have to be better than Amazon. <laughs> so we will give you half off that video course if you pre-order the book from us. There are pre-order signs at Linda Conroy's Moonwise booth where the books are. So if you want to get a copy, we're planning for a publication date of this October. And uh, Wow. It's going to be a great book. I've been working on this book for over 20 years. So, uh, as a matter of fact, it was that close to being published 20 years ago. And I'm so glad that it wasn't because science has done so much to back me up since then. 20 years ago, I would have had to say, believe me, believe me, believe me. Now I could say, science says, science says, science says. How wonderful. So, um, <clears throat> I think it's important as we start here that we understand that we're, we've come together to talk about what to do if you have a cancer diagnosis and to differentiate that from cancer. Because having a cancer diagnosis does not necessarily mean that you have cancer. Now that seems a little odd, doesn't it? How could that be? Well, it could be that they got it wrong. One of my students was told she had pancreatic cancer. She panicked. She went for chemotherapy immediately. I said to her, second opinion, second opinion, second opinion. After her second chemotherapy treatment, the second opinion came back. She didn't have pancreatic cancer. The CAT scan doesn't say anything. The MRI doesn't say anything. There's an actual human being who has to interpret the results of that. And they can get it wrong. So I 
say to anybody who says to me, I have a cancer diagnosis, or many people say I have cancer, I say, you have a cancer diagnosis, have you gotten a second opinion? Have you had somebody else look at the lab work? Have you had somebody else look at the pathology? Have you had somebody else look at the CAT scan? Have you had a second opinion about this? Now, your best second opinion comes from somebody who's really different. But at this point, you might want to get a second opinion by just going to another place that will read the pathology. But I do strongly urge people to really, if you have this kind of diagnosis, what would somebody who does traditional Chinese medicine say? How would they diagnose you? Start to break open that story. Because diagnosis is a story, isn't it? But diagnosis is a story with consequences. She believed the story that she had pancreatic cancer, and the consequence was that she did two rounds of chemotherapy that she did not need. When we hear the word cancer, there is something in us that goes into panic. And this is why it's important to me that we talk about cancer diagnosis, because we have less panic about that. But the video's course starts with herbs to calm you down. <coughs> because the very first thing that anybody who has a cancer diagnosis needs is some herb to help them calm down. I have never talked to any oncologist, which is a person whose profession is dealing with cancer, who has said, you have to be treated immediately. Starting way back when I researched for this book, which was published in 1996. Right, so this book's almost 25 years old. They have not changed their opinion one bit in 25 years. If anything, they have expanded that opinion because every oncologist that I talked to said, you have at least two weeks before you have to decide on any treatment at all. And now they're saying you have four to six weeks. Because they're understanding that by the time they've diagnosed that cancer, you have had it for a long time. And that taking another two to six weeks is not going to have any major impact. There are, of course, always exceptions, right? If, if you are bleeding and you're likely to die from the bleeding, well, then we need to do something immediately. We don't want to wait six weeks and say, well, she bled to death, right? Or if that cancer is impinging or impacting upon some critical organ, you might want to do something sooner. But in fact, using an herb to bring down your anxiety level will help you make better decisions about what you are going to do. I will speak for myself. I have never once made a good decision based on fear. Have you? No. Would you buy a car based on fear? If you don't buy this car, bad things are going to happen to you. What if a realtor said to you, you better buy this house or... Right? And yet the medical profession feels fully justified in trying to scare you into treatment. So step one, use herbs to relieve your anxiety. Most herbalists like some member of the mint family to relieve anxiety. My, oh, thank you. My personal favorite is Leonurus cardiaca, the lion-hearted motherwort. 
and I make a tincture of the fresh flowering top of motherwort. I find tinctures made from dried motherwort to be not really that great. They don't taste very good, they taste kind of bitter, and they don't work very well. So it's really easy to get a tincture made from the fresh flowering top of motherwort. Who has used motherwort to relieve anxiety? What would you say about it? Beautiful. Great. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's my go-to ally. It works. Yeah. It really, I, I had an apprentice who was so anxious that she carried the motherwort around in her pocket. <laughs> long time, right? And, you know, after her 13-week apprenticeship, and she went back to her job, and the next thing she calls me, she said, they just made me manager. She said, the motherwort's back in my pocket. <laughs> I said, well, look what it got you. <laughs> Pay raise. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But some people don't like motherwort. It doesn't grow around them. So another really great mint that relieves anxiety is lemon balm. Melissa officialis. Who uses? Who? Yeah. See, we got the lemon balm crew here. All right. <laughs> and what do we have to say about lemon balm? I actually like Lemon balm person over motherwort. Yes, see, those who like lemon balm, they love their lemon balm and tincture of the fresh flowering plant. Yes? Yeah. Tincture of the fresh flowering plant of lemon balm. Hey, and you love lemon balm, go with lemon balm. It's okay. Right? The, what, love? I'm going to go both together and call it mellow mama. Mellow <laughs> I understand. And one of the reasons I don't is because as soon as you start combining herbs, it becomes proprietary. And I want to reestablish herbal medicine as people's medicine. So if, you know, if I say who's using motherwort and they say, then we know they're talking about motherwort. And if I say who's using lemon balm and they say, we know what lemon balm does, but you can't tell us about either motherwort or lemon balm. You can only tell us about them together. And so our, the rug is pulled out from under our information sharing when they're combined. And if somebody were to use that tincture and not have access to both plants, then they have to come back to whoever sold them that tincture. And now herbal medicine is not people's medicine anymore. Now it's proprietary, commercial, money-making venture. And I have nothing against making money. Money is fine. But I like simples. Because motherwort works. It doesn't need anything with it. And lemon balm works, and it doesn't need anything with it. Now, the very first herbal I ever looked at was Herbs and Things by Jean Rose. And we miss her. Oh. And I opened that up, and the very first herbal formula she has has how many herbs in it? It's like on page two of the book. I think there's 18 herbs in it. And I looked at that, and I said, I'll never be an herbalist. Too complicated. And it really almost put me off that path completely. And it's one of the reasons that I am such a fierce defender of simples. Simples work just fine. Simples put the power back in our hands. You do not have to combine herbs to make them effective. <coughs> they work individually. There are herbs, of course, that get along wonderfully with other herbs. But I think it's important, especially, and I know that there are many people that I've talked to here who've said, oh, I'm just beginning. Especially if you're just beginning, really make it as simple. What other mint is used to relieve anxiety? 
Lavender, Lavendula officinalis. And you can use dried lavender, put a spoonful in a cup of hot water, let it steep for a couple of minutes and drink it down. Or better yet, when your lavender is blooming, take those lavender flowers, put them in a jar, pour honey over it. Ooh, and now you have preserved lavender flower in honey. And that honey preserves all the antioxidant value of the fresh herb. And you want a cup of lavender tea, you just stick your spoon down in there, stick in a cup of hot water and drink away. It's instant tea. You can do it with a lemon balm. Don't do it with motherwort. <laughs> what? The new apprentice said, I menstrual cramps. I said, well, there should be some motherwort tincture. The other apprentices should have left you motherwort tincture. And if not, there's catnip growing over there. So she came to me and she said, I couldn't find the motherwort tincture, so I ate some motherwort. Wow, does that taste bad? I said, yeah, <laughs> that's why we tincture it. <laughs> Pretty bitter. So those are wonderful herbs to relieve anxiety. If you live in a desert area, um, like the desert southwest, Passiflora, right? Desert southwest, all through the southern part of the U.S., from Florida all the way across. Passiflora is going to be one of your favorite relievers of anxiety. And again, you can make uh, tea from the leaves of passion flower. Um, what I love to do is to take a jar, half fill it with my 100 proof vodka, and then as my passion flowers bloom, I drop the flowers in there until my jar is full of just the flowers. But it's not just the flowers, it's the flowers, the leaves, and they can be used in just about any way. So who loves passion flower? Yeah, <laughs> just a lovely, lovely herb. I always feel like the eagle's heart has come into my body when I take passion flower. There's something so smooth about it. And I live in, a, a, in the Hudson River Valley. And we have a little boat that we take out on the Hudson River. And just the last weekend we were out on the river and the eagles were doing their pre-mating rituals which is just lovely. And so we got to see them because they're like choosing partners, right? And so you see three and four of them and they're flying way up and then they start like flying at each other. Right? She's mine. No, he's mine. No, I'm getting that one. Right? <laughs> and I just, wow, you know, the passion flower is like that. You have so much like energy, but you're calm at the same time. Right. The, these herbs are not sedatives. Most herbs that, that people use, used before us to relieve anxiety, if you look back a hundred years ago, the herbs they used to relieve anxiety were outright sedatives and they just kind of put people out. But I, we all want to be, I think, a little more active. All right. So we have dealt with that part. And we're just going to kind of leap ahead and say that you've gotten that second opinion and the second opinion says, yeah, yeah, this cancer diagnosis is... Israel. Now, before we go totally there, let me also mention that one of the places that people get into the most trouble around a cancer diagnosis is from screening tests. And screening tests are uh, kind of put out by the medical profession as this is preventative medicine. We're going to expose your breast to hard radiation, which causes cancer, and tell you it's preventative medicine. Hello? It's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> whoa, right? There is a wonderful group called the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. If you do not know about the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, find out. 
because these are the people who got the goods going. They recommend a one-time osteoporosis screening for women over 65. That's it, one. They recommend a yearly or every other year pap smear with human papillomavirus screening for women 21 to 65. They do not recommend any other screening tests of any kind. No study has shown a decrease in overall mortality for women of any age who have regular mammograms. An independent meta-analysis of 600,000 women who had regular mammograms found no overall benefit. False alarms are experienced by 50 to 61% of women who get regular mammograms. More than half of women who get regular mammograms will be told they have cancer when they don't by looking at the mammogram. This causes substantial emotional, physical, and financial dis distress, including a vastly increased insurance premium. If you are paying for insurance and you get a mammogram, and somebody reads that mammogram and says, you have cancer even if you don't, you're going to be paying a lot more for your insurance. That seems wrong. <laughs> right? Whoa! Right? Instead, be in touch with your breasts. Really. <laughs> no study has shown a decrease in overall mortality for men of any age from a PSA test. Colonoscopy does not reduce overall death, and serious complications occur in one out of every 220 colonoscopies. Safe screening tests to improve your health? Not! Internal bleeding occurs in the vast majority, perhaps all, colonoscopies. This is from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. This is not the National Enquirer saying this. <laughs> This is a group of highly respected medical professionals saying this. Screening colonoscopy maximizes profits for hospitals and highly paid subspecialists as a result of the profit-driven monstrosity that is the current U.S. health system. I quote them. Instead, fecal occult blood test or sigmoidoscopy, which reduces overall deaths, by 2%. CT scans for lung cancer, there is a very high risk of serious complication. Coronary carotid artery calcium screening is ill-advised. JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, says carotid screening is one of the most overused procedures in the healthcare system today. The vast majority of people with a blocked carotid artery will die of it, not because of it, and understand the surgery to clear that can kill you. So I'm reading from my new book, which will be published this fall, so you will have an opportunity to get all of this right here in hard black and white. All right, screening tests are not preventative medicine. Screening tests generate billions 
of dollars a year, and there is no shortage of hospitals, clinics, and doctors willing to use your fear of cancer to profit by screening tests. Actually, I think it's the insurance companies more than the doctors. I know the doctors in the place where I work get dinged if they don't badger the patients to get their colonoscopies. They get dinged if they don't badger their patients. What is being what is being dinged mean? Um, they their pay and their overall rating is it plummets if they look if the insurance companies look through these patient charts and there's no colonoscopy in this space of time, no mammogram, no nothing, they'll go back to the physician and they'll say, you are not doing your job, you're lowering your rating, you know, and so on. What a good advertisement for not going to the doctor at all. <laughs> Just keep your doctor out of it. You don't want to harm your doctor's reputation. Don't go. <laughs> So I'm not sure if you heard that, but she said that doctors get dinged. They look, the insurance companies look at their records, and if their patients aren't having colonoscopies and mammograms, then the doctor gets a bad rating and lower pay. Or reporting. Or is reported for not pushing these tests. And not just pushing these tests, but making sure that people get the tests. Enfor that they have to be enforcers for it. All right, so it's pretty scary what's going on out there with screening tests. All right, and um, you know what I what I say to people is just take this page to the doctor with you and say, look. <laughs> now, all the way back here, twenty five years ago, I already said, screw mammograms, don't do it. Already twenty five years ago, it was very very clear, and things have only gotten worse since then. Much much worse about pushing mammograms on women. 50 to 61% of women will get a false positive on a mammogram. Right? The smallest breast cancer that you can see on a mammogram is about the size of a printed period. What was that? The smallest breast cancer that you can see on a mammogram is about the size of a printed period. Is that early detection? No, it's not. Your average, if we can use average to talk about cancer, your average breast cancer doubles every 100 days. So it starts with one cell. 100 days later, it's two. 100 days later, it's four. And 100 days later, at the end of the first year, it's eight. There are one million cancer cells in that period on the mammogram. Do the math. By the time it's seen on a mammogram, that cancer has been in your body for seven to 10 years. You're gonna wait two to six weeks, it's nothing. Nothing at all. Now, yes, there are cancers that grow very, very, very rapidly. You've heard me talk about my beloved friend, Marie Summerwood, who found a lump literally the size of a lentil in her breast and was dead 138 days later. But even if she'd had a mammogram, the mammogram, the mammogram, it was way up in here. The mammogram it does not image stuff that's up in this area very well at all. 
And it, it, if it's in between, right, 138 days, that could be in between mammograms if they're yearly, right? She could have gone, gotten a clear mammogram, and died before she got her next mammogram. So getting a mammogram doesn't necessarily save you from that very aggressive cancer. Those very aggressive cancers are very aggressive cancers, and they're daunting. All right, so fortunately, she had tremendous support from her community and um, left us with a group of women singing her chants. And in the days preceding her death, she said, at, at my memorial service, I would like you to sing this, and I would like you to do this. <laughs> Just back a couple of weeks ago from her memorial service, where Marie was very much there because she had planned the entire thing for us to uh, send her away in that, that lovely, lovely way. So um, if we have a diagnosis, we're going to calm down. We're going to help you some herbs to calm down. We're going to say to ourselves, in most instances, this cancer has already been in my body for quite a while. I'm going to take the next, and set yourself a time limit. I'm going to take the next X amount of time to explore and investigate what my options are. So we can make a few boxes for our options. Our options are surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, or something that isn't that. Right? Those are our basic options. The medical establishment has a lot to say about those first three options, about surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And I notice that the medical profession is no longer saying chemotherapy and radiation. They are now saying chemoradiation. Uh, because as far as they're concerned, they're just going to, you know, have people do both. And again, 25 years ago, the information was extremely clear that radiation therapy for women who have a breast cancer diagnosis is not what you think. Let's find fighting fire with fire. Fighting fire with fire here. Different types of breast cancer respond to radiation differently. The most strongly affected are ductal or invasive intraductal carcinoma, which is not ductal carcinoma in situ. However, a wide excision with clean edges will prevent recurrence to the same extent that radiation does. And, um, oh God. Sorry, don't know where that is. There's some statistic here somewhere that shows that um, women who choose radiation, ah, here we go, during an average 43-month follow-up, that's about four years, 91% of the women treated for breast cancer without adjuvant radiation were alive, and 92% of those who were treated with radiation were alive. What does that tell us? So radiation's doing nothing except making more money for the doctors. In most hospitals, a single radiation treatment is going to be billed out at between $800 and $1,200. And for most women with breast cancer, they're going to be using between 
21 to 30 radiation treatments. We are talking huge money makers here. Uh, understand that as soon as you step into scientific medicine, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, there is no one who will be concerned with your health. Now, that sounds like a vicious thing to say, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it is true. Because as far as they're concerned, they're saving your life. And so your health has nothing to do with it. Right? Right? The fact that radiation actually causes cancer is completely immaterial to them. It real, am, I, am I misstating this? And radiation does cause cancer. I mean, we know radiation causes cancer. It causes DNA damage. My next-door neighbor was treated with radiation for her breast cancer in her 70s, and at 91, she died of salivary gland cancer caused by her radiation treatment. As a matter of fact, there's a whole new specialty in medicine, which is treating cancers caused by cancer therapy. Therapy. Right, therapy. Right. Because we're getting people with cancer younger and younger and younger. It used to be, oh, you know, you do radiation and chemotherapy on somebody in their 70s. Well, they'll die before they can get that secondary cancer. But now we're treating people in their 20s and 30s. We're treating children. And they're getting those secondary cancers that are caused by the chemo radiation when they're in their 40s and 50s. This is not inconsequential to us. Take herbs to relieve anxiety and sit down and say, what do I really need to do? This information is not inaccessible. It's here in my books and it's all over the internet. Your doctor will tell you, you have to do this. As soon as any doctor says you have to, go find out something else. Because there aren't any half how are we doing on time here? I, I know we have a short class, just an hour and a half, right? So we've been only here half an hour. Good, all right. Um, this book, the new book, covers what to do if you choose surgery and what to do if you choose radiation. This book also covers what to do if you choose surgery and what to do if you choose radiation. But this information is 25 years closer to now, so the information is better. Um, but so as not to make it too thick a book, I left the information on chemotherapy here because you know what? Not much has changed there. They're still using the same chemotherapeutic drugs really very, very little has changed there. And I was kind of shocked. I thought, oh, well, they must have all the... Nope. And this chapter is called The Poisoned Apple. Right? Radiation is fighting fire with fire, but this is The Poisoned Apple. And um, if you do have surgery and you decide to have chemotherapy, um, the oncologist that I talked to suggested that you give yourself four to six weeks in between. The push is to push you right from surgery into chemo radiation. 
And the oncologists that I spoke to and the people doing these therapies say that is very, very difficult to recover from. Give yourself the time to fully recover from the surgery before you go on. And you may even decide that you don't want to at that point. That will give you yet more time to find out. And one of the things that I have been having people tell their doctor is, do you know in China it's considered malpractice to do either chemotherapy or radiation without adaptogenic herbs? <laughs> hmm. Really? Yes. Yes, they consider it that, that, it's, that it's violent to the patient to, to do either chemotherapy or radiation unless you give them adaptogenic herbs. So, wow. All right, I'm hoping, right, what's the subtitle? The Complementary Integrated Medical Revolution, right? We have integrative medicine. Integrative medicine is, well, we've done the surgery, we've done the chemotherapy, we've done the radiation, now you can go see an acupuncturist. No, I want integrated. We don't integrative. This is crazy. You want it into. You want to be taking the adaptogenic herbs before the chemotherapy, during the chemotherapy, and after the chemotherapy. Before the radiation, during the radiation, and for sure, after the radiation. The effects of the radiation increase for three to six months after the last radiation therapy treatment. The effects are increasing in your body. You need to keep taking those adaptogenic herbs. The chemotherapy continues to do damage to your body even when you're not taking it. This is why they're used to get rid of cancer because they keep on working. So we can't just say, well, that was my last chemotherapy treatment. I don't need these adaptogenic herbs anymore. You do. And adaptogenic herbs are now more widely available to us. And this book gives you a little list of specific chemotherapies and the specific herbs that can be used to help counter those. It's a little, little chart here, right? And the possible damage that you'll find the specific, um, it's not set up with the chemotherapy and then the side effects because that many of them have similar side effects. So I set it up from the side effect to the chemotherapy. Um, 5-FU, uh, also known as fucks you up five ways. <laughs> 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 right? <laughs> All right. Uh, so th this will give you some help there. And um, I'm not against any of these treatments. Let me be very, very clear. These treatments can be useful. You have to decide when to do it. The, when I first started studying herbal medicine back in the 60s, and then by the time I was finally able to find somebody who knew something about it, which was almost 10 years, um, they were very black and white, and they practiced alternative medicine. And I saw my teachers say to people, you have cancer? What have you done? I did chemotherapy. Out, you've ruined your body, herbs won't work. 
I, I, I'm just sitting there going, this is so wrong. It's just wrong. And I don't use the word wrong very often. It's just wrong to tell somebody, you haven't ruined your body. Okay, you may have messed it up, but you haven't ruined it. Doesn't, doesn't everybody deserve a chance? We're here asking for our help. And it was at that point that I said, I don't want to be alternative. I don't want to be alternative if alternative is against something. Because I'm not against anything. And I said, well, what else could you call it, Susan? And that's when I coined the word complimentary. And complimentary has had a good long run. It just got, kind of got fused onto alternative. Complimentary alternative medicine, right? C-A-M, CAM. Right? And there's even a, a National Institutes of Health complimentary alternative medicine center. But Andrew Weil said, hey, let's use integrative. And that's really taken the field. And I love it. But it, in practice, it doesn't practice out the way it should be, right? Which is why I'm now calling for integrated, yet another change of word, because words really do have a lot of meaning to us. And I want you to understand, and all the medical professionals to understand, that this is not either or, it's both and. We're going to use these things together. Acupuncture is not going to cure your cancer but it will really moderate any symptoms that you have from treatment. Massage is not going to cure your cancer. But if you're choosing surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation, you might need massage as much as every other day. Because you're going to be in pain. And that massage will help you move that pain. All of these treatments that we think of as alternative or complementary are integrated into your care. And this is part of what you're doing when you're taking that time between the diagnosis and the treatment. You're setting this up. Who's going to be my massage therapist? Where am I going for treatment? Is it going to be in my hometown? Is it going to be at a major city? Does it make a difference? It makes a huge difference. It is worth going to a major city and renting an apartment for the duration of your treatment because you will fare far, far better at a major cancer center than you will anywhere else. Have you seen things like this? I saw you nodding over there. Yeah, yeah. It really does make a difference. It ma makes a huge difference. Yes, it's going to cost you some money, but gang, it's going to cost you some money. And with, you know, Airbnb, you can now rent an apartment anywhere for a month in whatever town. Are you raising your hand or, or no, you're not raising your hand. I just caught it out of the corner of my eye. So <laughs> turn and see it. Oh, she's rubbing her hands together. How wonderful. Can you do what? I said, I, I, I think that I don't know enough, but there are funds that exist that can help with costs for mm -hmm. those kinds of treatments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> At Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan, they actually provide free housing. It's group housing, however. And if, if you're the kind of person who needs to, like, scream when you're in pain, it's not suitable. <laughs> you have to know yourself, right? Are you really going to be okay in a group housing situation where you have to share a kitchen facility to make your infusions and you may not be able to get in the bathroom when you need to get into the bathroom. It right? works for some people and it can be free, but for other people it doesn't work at all.
So if you, if this is starting to like make you a little worried financially, well, here's what I suggest. And it's what I've been doing for the past 20 years. I've been setting aside a hundred dollars a month toward any medical emergency that might come up because I do not want to be limited to what insurance will pay for. And I have invested that money in the PAX, P-A-X, World Fund. P-A-X has a variety of funds. They have a woman's fund, too. The PAX World Fund. And I am not an investment advisor. You take my advice at your own risk. Past performance is no guarantee of future return. <laughs> However, PAX World Fund, during the 20 years I have been invested in it, is very stable. It does not go rocketing up when the market goes rocketing up, and that means it doesn't go crashing down when the market goes crashing down. There's going to be some variance, but very little. And I'm almost embarrassed to say how much $100 a month over 20 years has turned into. It's a big wad of money. So that if something happens to me, I am completely free to make my own decisions. I don't have to say, I have to do this because insurance will pay for it. Right? Question, comment. Do you give any advice on when it is time to go to a big cancer facility? Because it's like everything is at my house of like my support system, my masseuse, my acupuncturist, my, I friend, understand. my lover, my garden, my yeah. all the stuff. Mm -hmm. Going through cancer treatment where I am. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's going okay. I mean, I don't know if like going somewhere else would be like fantastic, but it's, I feel good and... Then you're doing fine. Okay. Then you're doing fine. It's, you know, we are each so unique and each situation is so unique. When I, when I wrote the breast cancer book, whoa, one of the first things I found out is there were over a hundred different kinds of breast cancer. You can't even just talk about breast cancer because it's a hundred different things. And those hundred different kinds of breast cancer can be staged. And they stage zero, one, two, three, four. So there's five, so there's 500 different kinds of breast cancer, right? Whoa, we cannot make generalizations. And then we have all of our individual needs and desires and what works. But uh, my gym partner's husband was diagnosed with human papillomavirus cancer in his throat. Three weeks later, a friend of his was diagnosed with exactly the same cancer. Now, we, it could be different. There can be all kinds of differences that we can't see. And so what, I could be, what I'm saying could be absolutely wrong, but I think nonetheless, I think there's some little kernel of truth there. The Isaac, Yvette's husband, went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, MSKCC. And the other man went to... Albany, and we live in Woodstock, basically Albany's 40 miles away, and Manhattan's 100 miles away, and they received different treatment, they received vastly different care, and the man who went to the smaller cancer center up in Albany was put on a feeding tube, wasn't given a choice. Isaac was given a choice. He was still on that feeding tube a year and a half after his treatment was finished. Right? So, you know, and Isaac is in full health. He went the whole nine yards. 
He said, thank you very much for your advice, Susan. I'm going to do everything the doctors say. But he had a vet there with him, right? And she's feeding him infusions and the adaptogenic herbs. And she's, you know, taking care of him. And he did, you know, he did all of it. He did the radiation. He did 100 radiation therapies. He did three rounds of chemotherapy, right? They don't, don't advise surgery, thank goodness, right? And... You know, within the year, he was completely fine. And the person who was diagnosed three weeks after him still is not fine. And it's been two and a half years. So it can make that big a difference. You have to know. But it sounds like your situation is ideal. That you're at home, your massage therapist is there, your family is there, the people to take care of you are there. How wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's no one size fits all. Right. So let's look a little bit at what we can do when we're dealing with radiation. And for the past six months, I have been kind of beating my head against the wall with the people at MSK, trying to get them to give people who are undergoing radiation therapy some information about it. My take on it is, if you're giving this person a drug, you would give them a drug insert that tells them what kind of side effects the drug would have, right? Why don't you give them the package insert for radiation therapy? And you know what, they, what, I, what the answer I keep getting? Well, there's no way to moderate any of the side effects, and if we tell you what they are, you'll just get them. Gang, we are supposed to outgrow magical thinking by the time you hit kindergarten. <laughs> this is magical thinking. All right. I want, I want in every cancer center, I want an information sheet on radiation so that people know what could happen because they don't. And I'm here trying to help them. And I, it's hard for me to get that information too. Right, and then they say, yeah, well, it might be different for this person who's having, you know, radiation for brain cancer and this person who's having it for breast cancer and said, there's got to be some overall things we can tell them. So this is what I have come up with. First of all, what we need to know is radiation causes inflammation. That's a pretty clear and easy statement and it's true for all radiation and all types of cancer. Radiation causes inflammation. Radiation increases free radical production. Now, as soon as we know those two things, as, as people who are active in our own health, we know some things to use, don't we? We have anti-inflammatory things. We know that free radicals are countered by antioxidants, and we know there are plenty of herbs from blueberries right on down that are loaded with antioxidants. So it doesn't have to be complex or, or, or you know. And they said, well, and then we, can't, we couldn't possibly tell them herbs because we'll lose our license. I said, well, could you tell them blueberries and not lose your license? <laughs> Please. Uh, I can only like, hassle with them about once a month because it just, I just have to go, you know, like for a couple of weeks before I can do it again. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Anybody else who can work on it wherever you are, we really, I think, I think we deserve, I think every single person deserves an information sheet on radiation therapy, which is not available now. They give you, they give you information on it, but it's like, it has really nothing to do with the radiation. It says, use this kind of skin cream. I'm like, 
<laughs> Radiation initiates new cancers and spreads old ones. Okay? So there's the three most important things that I want people to know about radiation. Compelling scientific evidence confirms plants' effectiveness in protecting against the long-term negative effects of radiation, including the initiation of secondary cancers and the spread of existing cancer. Herbal allies used before, during, and for 6 to 24 months after radiation therapy can prevent damage to cells and their DNA and support healing. Daily use of all the things listed here is considered safe. Most of these remedies work best if taken before exposure to radiation, but I have starred the ones that are effective if they are used afterwards. Even one of these allies will help you but the more the better. <clears throat> okay, we just talked about inflammation. Health.harvard.edu has the best list of anti-inflammatory foods I've ever seen. Right? Health.harvard.edu. Anti-inflammatory foods. <coughs> All right, ready for the next one? N-C-H-I dot N-I-M dot N-I-H dot G-O-V, right? So we have N-C-H-I dot N-I-M dot N-I-H, National Institutes of Health dot gov, has, <clears throat> believe it or not, the world's best list of anti-inflammatory herbs. Sure. N-C-H-I dot N-I-M dot N-I-H dot gov. <laughs> it's not org. It's not com. It's gov. G-O-V. Okay. And wow, I was like, look at that. Look at that. Like the best list of anti-inflammatory with all the PubMed citations is right there at the National Institutes of Health. Right, and all these cancer centers, oh, well, we can't tell people anything about herbs. I said, well, just give them this website address then. I don't think you'll lose your license for, like, giving out a website address. So, <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned, anybody who has that much information can already get through radiation better. Just that much information right there. But let's go further. New study has just shown that you can apply any oil of any kind to your skin before radiation therapy and it will not damage you. Oh, because this is the going myth. You cannot put any oil on your skin before radiation because it will be very, very damaging. The study actually found that any application up to an application as thick as a penny is safe. I'm thinking, what could I even possibly apply to my skin that would be as thick as a penny? Castor oil. Right, castor oil. Maybe castor oil with beeswax. <laughs> right? <laughs> for years and years and years, for over 30 years now, I have recommended to people going through radiation therapy to coat their skin with hypericum oil before and after every treatment. If you're getting radiation on one side that comes through on the other side, are you talking about what, side? Actually, what I now say is 
where the radiation is, cast a really big circle around there. Getting radiation to this side of your head, put that hypericum oil all the way down to your belly button, front and back and sides. Right? Bathe in the stuff. Right? You can't use too much. And for 25 years, I've been telling people, just lie. Just lie. Just put it on an hour beforehand and just lie about it. And now I'm saying, tell them you're doing it. Just tell them, you're not telling them, tell them to look it up. Study is showing it's absolutely perfectly safe. Anybody here used hypericum oil along with radiation therapy? Perhaps the most dramatic case <laughs> was um, a woman that I knew and... Um, she was doing some work late on her computer and she looked at the window and there was this kind of dancing pattern on the ground. And she said, isn't that interesting? I wonder what's making that? And she realized her house was on fire. Oh. And she was seeing the, fire, the pattern of the fire from the roof dancing on the ground, right? And she managed to get herself and the cats out of the house before the roof's, roof collapsed. But she inhaled a lot of junk. And... Um, so she was having all of these lung tests to find out, and they discovered she had lung cancer. And she did one, it was inoperable lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, and she did 100 radiation treatments to this very sensitive area of her body, which she thoroughly put hypericum on. And at the last time that she went to see the doctor after her last radiation treatment, the doctor said, okay, now you can tell me what you've been doing. She said, oh, you know, I've been doing something. Said, I've known all along you've been doing something, but I didn't want to ask you because then I'd have to tell you not to do it. And she said, well, how do you know? He says, because you're not burned. You're not burned. He says, look at your skin. He says, we just irradiated you a hundred times and your skin looks like a baby's skin. It is soft. It is supple. It is not burned. It is not hard. What would that skin look like usually after a hundred radiation <coughs> treatments across your chest? It would look like wood. It hardens, it blackens. Right? Hypericum will prevent all of that. And without any decrease in the effectiveness of the radiation. You protect yourself, but the radiation has its effect on the cancer. The hypericum does not prevent the radiation from harming the cancer. It's merely a surface protection to your skin. Um, so, unfortunately, I know people that that's already happened to. Is hypericum still good? Yes, you can still use it afterwards to help heal. And for those of you who don't know, hypericum is St. John's wort or St. Jones wort. I started calling it St. Jones wort because it's so effective against burns, and I figured John knows nothing about burns. <laughs> John is, you know, John is what? Um, excuse me, he was kind of a woman hater too, right? But Joan, she knows about burns, right? And wow, you know, how old was St. Joan when she was doing this stuff? How old was she when she was burned? Fifteen years old. This is a teenage woman and they're She's tied to the stake and they're going to burn her. And they say, Joan, you're being burned for heresy. All you have to say is God did not speak to me and we will untie you and you will walk away. And what did Joan say? 
God spoke to me like the fire. Now that's a girl I want on my side. So Hypericum perforatum is St. Joan's wart to me. I want that kind of fierceness. I want that kind of protection. I want somebody who says, you don't think God could speak to me? Well, guess what? God spoke to me. Okay. <laughs> Um, it, you know, it, it's so new that it's not even in the book yet, oh. but I'm going to get it in. Any oil, any oil that you want to put on your skin, but the hypericum oil is the only oil I know of that will prevent okay. damage to your skin. It was not, it was, oh God, no, they were using, you know, like all kinds of stuff. <coughs> all right. Right. And yes, it heals radiation burns as well. Soy. Like tofu, miso, soy milk, shoyu, and edamame activates genes involved in DNA repair and prevents radiation-induced skin cell death. Soy's radioprotective enzyme inhibitor survives processing. No matter how processed that soy is, the radioprotective enzyme inhibitor in it is going to be active. The U.S. military has stockpiled soy to protect personnel in case of nuclear war. Say a little louder. And yet we tell women not to have soy if they have breast cancer. Not like anymore. The first thing physicians say. Is the first thing that a physician will say if you have breast cancer is don't don't have any soy. Exactly right. Oh, well, yeah. Not all doctors are up to date. Not all doctors are up to date. <laughs> or as Larry Dossie says, you just have to wait for them to die. <laughs> it very much pretends. Don't tell them, just don't take it at all. Don't yeah. eat it at all. But I think if you have hormonal receptive cancer, yeah. you should not take soy. That's not true. Okay. That's not true. That is so not true. All right, I'll back up. Okay. That's what I was told 23 years ago. I understand, but even 23 years ago, it wasn't true. Right, right. Okay. So because estrogen is not one thing. Estrogen is thousands of things. First of all, there is estrogen made by your body. Okay? Do you stop making estrogen at menopause? No way! Human women make 30 different types of estrogen. Estradiol, estrace, estrone, or some of them you've heard of. 30 different types of estrogen. You're born making 29 of them, and you die making 29 of them. Estradiol, the most dangerous of all estrogens, which is to breast cancer as kerosene is to fire, turns on at puberty and turns off at menopause, and it turns off at menopause to give us longevity. Okay, so we, are, we continue to make 29 estrogens every single day of our life. So you can't tell a woman to not have estrogen because she already has estrogen. And what is the drug most prescribed for a woman who has a diagnosis of breast cancer? Tamoxifen. And tamoxifen is what? Estrogen. Tamoxifen is estrogen, okay? Well, why are we telling women to avoid estrogen and then prescribing estrogen for them? Whoa! Because the 29 estrogens we make every day of our lives protect us against the effects of estradiol. And that's what tamoxifen does. It literally blocks the estradiol cellular receptors on the cancer. 
Those cancers are not estrogen-sensitive, they're estradiol-sensitive. And soy does not contain any estradiol. As a matter of fact, soy contains phytoestrogens that block cancer from uptaking estradiol. It's, I say that plants that contain estrogens are like herbal tamoxifen. There is no herb that has more trash written about it on the internet than red clover. Trash. <laughs> really, trash. Really, you go on the internet and you read about red clover, you will think that it gives you breast cancer. And it does exactly the opposite. It's in the bean family. We took 100 women. We gave them a single serving of beans. That's it. One serving of beans. And then we collected the urine. Why? Because beans, like soy, which is a bean, and red clover, which is a bean, and astragalus, which is a bean, these are all in the Fabaceae family, the legume, the legumes, right? Contain proto hormones. Plants don't need estrogen. And so they don't make it. Many years ago at the International Herb Symposium, which is next weekend's great gathering, I was teaching a class on phytoestrogens, and Stephen Booner was teaching a class on phytotestosterones. And some wit doing the scheduling decided it would be cute to schedule us at the same time, which made us kind of pout, because we wanted to go to each other's classes, right? So we said, all right, we'll make a lunch date. So after class, we got together at lunch, and he said, ladies first. I said, well, I told them no plant contains estrogen. And now you, he said, I told them that pine pollen contains pure testosterone. <laughs> now, what is the botanical name of pine? pine no, that's not how you say it. Penis. P-I-N-U-S <laughs> <laughs> is pronounced penis, so penis pollen is pure testosterone. Okay, we got that, but there's no plant that contains estrogen. Well, that's not exactly true. Pomegranate seeds and orange peels contain estrace or estrone. All right, so the, uh, everything else that's supposed to be a phytoestrogen, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plants, every root, every seed, and every plant in the bean and pea family. That means carrots, beets, potatoes, wheat, rice. Every bean, every seed, and every plant in the P and B family contains phytoestrogens. Basically, if you want to avoid phytoestrogens, soy, avoiding soy ain't going to do it, is it? Right? <laughs> Basically, you have to stop eating if you want to avoid phytoestrogens, but they don't contain estrogen. They contain the precursors that could be turned into any hormone at all. So we fed these women a single serving of beans, then we collected their urine, because when you do this metabolizing of the beans and make these hormones, there are meta metabolites that are thrown off into your urine. So we can see how well your body is turning those beans into hormones in your body. And we were specifically looking to see if those beans were turning into estrogens in the body by looking at those metabolites. We then divided that group of 100 women into quadriles, which means 25s. The 25 who had the least metabolites in the urine, 25, 25, and then the 25 who had the most metabolites. In other words, the women whose bodies were doing the best job of turning 
the precursors into active hormones in their bodies. We then followed those women out for 15 years and the difference in breast cancer rates between the 25 who had the least activity from the beans and the 25 who had the most activity of the beans was a 400 times difference. The released excretors had 400 times more risk of breast cancer than the greatest excretors. Wow, huh? Because phytoestrogens protect you against cancer. Was it in their diet then? No. Why were some excreting Aha, now that's the question, isn't it? How come there were low excretors and high excretors? They all just had a serving of beans. Because you have to have gut flora. And you have to have the right gut flora to do this conversion. And if you don't got the right gut flora, you ain't converting very well. So now we have circled around to, oh, gut flora becomes important in preventing cancer. All right, so let's list things that kill gut flora. Antibiotics. Alcohol. Alcohol disturbs your liver but doesn't really kill gut flora. Food preservatives kill gut flora. What are they in food for? For killing bacteria. For killing bacteria. Yeah. Ha, ha. Okay, food preservatives. Essential oils destroy your gut flora, and they destroy it more thoroughly inhaled than any other way. Are they antimicrobial? Are they antifungal? Are they antibacterial? Yes, yes, and yes. And that's what your gut flora is. And look at how drenched in essential oils people are who don't even think they're using them. You get up in the morning and brush your teeth, what's in your toothpaste? Essential oil. You rinse your mouth, what's in your mouthwash? Essential oil. That sure is in your Tom's toothpaste. Yeah, or yarrow tincture, right? You jump in the shower and wash yourself with a nice handmade soap that contains essential oil. And you wash your hair with an organic shampoo that contains essential oil. And then you get out of the shower, you put a nice lotion all over your body that contains essential oil. And now you're going to be healthy? You just totally capsized your health right there in the first 15 minutes of your day. And set yourself up for cancer because you can no longer convert. Yeah. I know. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. But we're just talking about your kind of normal thing. People who don't even think, people who don't think they're using essential oils. Right? People who do not think they're using essential oils nonetheless are drenching themselves in essential oils is what I'm saying. And this is going to prevent you from having the gut bacteria that will allow you to utilize these pre-hormonal factors in red clover, astragalus, soy, and every other root, seed, and bean. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry? The best way to rebuild your gut flora is to get rid of the essential oils <laughs> and to start eating moldy, bacteria-ridden things. The easiest way to do this is this. Bless. 
Because what is mostly missing in the American gut flora is dirt. Dirt. And there's a great study that was just published. Science finds dirt is healthy. Yeah, it's true. Dirt is very healthy. So at the Wise Woman Center, we pick salad. People say, why do you pick salad? You don't even believe in raw food. I'm like, believe in raw food? Is raw food like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny that you have to believe in it? I say, I say, it's because I want to feed them dirt, and this is the tastiest way to get dirt into their bodies. Now, Ryan Grum, who's just a little pushier than I am, says, go out to your compost pile, get some really well-composted compost, right? put a spoonful in a glass of water, and drink it down every morning. Okay. Okay, for me, I would prefer to just eat wild plants. And you know, you can just walk around and eat wild plants and then you're getting that good gut flora. In terms of gut flora, the more solid the probiotic is, the more you're going to get from it. So you get more from sauerkraut than you will from yogurt. You'll get more from yogurt than you will from kombucha. You, way more than a capsule. The more solid the probiotic is, the more you will get from it. Right. Tempeh is not a probiotic. No, it's moldy soybeans, right? If you take everybody in the world who's allergic to something and you take out the group that's allergic to soy, you've already reduced your group of, of people who are allergic by almost half. Right? Soy is a huge allergen, right? If you then take out of the remaining group everybody who's allergic to mold, you would then again reduce your group by half. So the two biggest allergens are mold and soybeans. And we're gonna, I would not ever recommend that people eat moldy soybeans, which is what tempeh is. <laughs> Marie and I tried serving tempeh at the Wise Women's Center. We had people projectile vomiting. <laughs> Nasty stuff, right? Natto is fermented soybeans, but Americans are not going to eat black slime that you have to eat with a bowl under your chin, right? We have made no progress at all in getting Americans to accept natto, so we'll just leave it be. Okay, a dropper full of Panex ginseng. Panex ginseng is the ginseng of America, taken an hour before and after each radiation session, sustains energy, reduces damage to cells and DNA, and supports cellular repair regeneration. These studies were done at MSK. But when I had people tell the doctors at MSK that they're going to take this during radiation, they say, that's unsafe. And I go, but you're the ones who did the studies. Why don't you just go and look at your website, huh? In human cell studies, ginseng protected white blood cells from DNA damage for, after, for up to 90 minutes after radiation exposure. So both soy and ginseng can be taken afterwards and have tremendous effect. Vitamin A from carrot juice, well-cooked carrots, sweet potatoes, winter squash, frozen or dehydrated papaya or mango, but not as a supplement. Ameliorates radiation side effects, prevents radiation-induced death of healthy cells, and enhances the death of cancer cells. One of the very first people that I met, oh, whoa, almost 50 years ago, who was doing alternative cancer care was bald. And I said, I thought you were doing alternative cancer care. She said, I am. I'm taking vitamin A. I said, really? How much vitamin A are you taking? She said, 500,000 IUs a day. It's enough to kill you. So no, and that's chemotherapy. And she lost all her hair because of it. 
I said, you know what? You'd probably be better off with the chemotherapy. <laughs> because you're kind of experimenting on yourself, honey. <laughs> Carrots contain a water-soluble anti-cancer compound called falcarinol. And as soon as you cut the carrot, falcarinol starts to dissipate. So how are you going to cook your carrots? Whole. Cook your carrots whole. Cook them for an hour. Get anti-cancer protection. Seaweed can also be used afterward. Kelp, wakame, kombu, eaten or cooked, absorbs radioactivity and carries it out of the body. And this is true even if the seaweed is itself high in radioactivity. These studies have been done in Japan. They take seaweed that has radioactivity in it, they feed it to people, and there's more radioactivity in the seaweed when it comes out of the body than when it went in. Mm. Polyphenol-rich nourishing herbal infusions, especially nettle, drunk before exposure to radiation, maintain healthy blood, exercise speeds recovery from radiation damage. A handful of nuts or nut butter provides enough vitamin E to enhance the growth-inhibiting effects of radiation on cancer cells while protecting normal cells, almonds especially. Ginkgo tincture can be taken by the dropper full before or after exposure to ameliorate damage. Garlic cooked, roasted raw, or how is garlic most effective? Powdered. Dried, dehydrated, Powdered garlic is the single most effective way to use garlic. Like in the best grocery store? Yeah. But Frontier, Frontier sells a wonderful granulated organic garlic. Frontier herb. Fabulous. The thing about it is, you know, how many times you go, oh, gee, I'd really like some garlic in this. Oh, I don't want to peel it. Oh, you know, it's coming out. You got, a, you got a pound of granulated garlic? Yeah, you're dumping it in everything. Exactly. You're going to eat so much more garlic. Right? And it has garlic's medicinal qualities are caused by oxidation. I know. That's crazy, isn't it? There's a substance in garlic, in the raw garlic, that is inactive until... Yes. There's no allicin in raw garlic. There's alanase. And you have to cut it, and the alanase gets acted on by oxygen. It gets oxidized, and it becomes allicin. So the more processed the garlic is, the more allicin you have. Whoa! <laughs> Doesn't that make it easy? Garlic down-regulates radiation-induced inflammation. And, of course, adaptogens, right? Especially ginseng, amla, and eleuthero. We have been asked to stop calling it Siberian ginseng. I was actually, like, racking my house for my eleuthero. And I couldn't find it, and I couldn't find it. And so I went to bed, and I said, tomorrow, would you please let me find my eleuthero? And I went to the cupboard, and I opened it up, and what's staring me right in the face is this huge bottle of this Siberian ginseng. And I'm like, right, of course, because I made it, you know, before we were asked to not call it ginseng anymore. <laughs> but the ginseng people got a little upset. 
adaptogens increase survival time, reduce mortality, reduce inflammatory response, reduce all short and long-term radiation side effects, reduce pain, reduce fatigue, shield healthy cells from damage, inhibit mutations of genes sensitive to radiation, protect the thyroid, the heart, and the lungs from damage, protect the genome from epigenetic damage, prevent radiation fibrosis, and protect the lipids in your body which surround every cell from radiation-induced peroxidation. I suspect by the number of people that are lurking that our time is over. Is that true? Ten minutes. Yes. Okay. So, questions? Yes. Is chemotherapy used topically? Is that what you're asking? No, I'm saying we are starting to see it used more topically. You're starting to see more chemotherapy used topically. You can do the same things, right? What we haven't covered was herbs that are chemotherapeutic. And so all of the things that we have been talking about can be integrated into your standard treatments, right? Now, there are a growing number of people who are using poke root as herbal chemotherapy. I have always been very cautious in my use of poke, suggesting that you start with a one-drop dose. You must pick your poke root fresh. Dried poke root has no effectiveness at all. I'm not even sure why there's dried poke root on the market. And I've been... You don't have to wear gloves. I've worked with a barehanded all the time. But if you're sensitive to it, then wear gloves. But there's nothing caustic about the poke root itself. You really don't. It's just fine. All right, so you dig your poke root, chop it up, tincture it. Okay. Start with one drop of that tincture. Every day or every other day, double your dose. So you start with one, then the next day or two days later, you take two. Then the next day or two days later, you take four. Then the next day or two days later, you take eight. So you gradually build up. You'll get to the point where you have symptoms from the poisons in poke root. You've gotten symptoms. What kind of symptom did you get? Did you throw up? Did you just feel I, nauseated? Nausea, and then I was like, pull back, pull back. Pull back. <laughs> pull so back. you drop back to the level that you were before that, right? Yes. Or, or and nausea, extreme nausea, or diarrhea, or gut pain, or visual disturbances. I was teaching a class. Oh, you can't eat pokeberries. I said, sure, you can eat pokeberries. And I had some there, so I just swallowed a whole handful of pokeberries. Fortunately, by the time class was over, I could tell that there were, <laughs> oh, that's 15 people. It's not 30 people. It's not 30. Uh, uh, <laughs> Whoa, okay, visual disturbance, got it. So if you get symptoms, you back up. And you back up until you feel like you're okay, and then you start progressing again. I have met people who have gotten rid of their cancer taking doses of poke as large as a tablespoon of poke root tincture several times a day. But you must work up to that. So you don't stay low. When you go back and then you build and up. Then you, and then, when, then, you, then, you, then you keep building. You're right. You go back to what. So if you get symptom at eight drops, you drop back to four. And when you feel stabilized, you go back up to eight and then 16 and you keep increasing. And if doubling, once you get in higher numbers, if doubling is too much, then increase by five or 10 or whatever feels right to your body. But I am now talking, because I've been talking about poke, I'm now getting a lot of people telling me, yeah, that's all I used. That's all I used and I cleared my cancer. 
I would not use poke root if you were using chemotherapy. Right? <laughs> Please. Right. Ugh. Right. Mistletoe. Mistletoe therapy uh, from Steiner and the anthroposophical tradition. And what was the study? I'm going to also put that study in the book. It's hard to put a close on the book because all these new studies keep coming in. 80% um, of people who are being treated for cancer in Germany, Holland, and some other country are using mistletoe therapy concurrently. Uh, it could be Israel. Yeah, someone mentioned it. I think I've heard it that. Could, yeah, yeah. And I, I said, whoa, I would have not recommended to use it if you're doing chemotherapy or radiation at the same time. But this is how it's being used in the countries that use it. There are MDs in the United States, and usually you do your mistletoe therapy under the guidance of an MD. Most of the time, mistletoe therapy is injected. And you inject yourself with the mistletoe therapy, and you go to your MD who's overseeing your mistletoe therapy on a regular basis, and that MD will decide how often for an IV of mistletoe. So you inject yourself on a daily basis, whatever regime, not everybody is told to do it daily, and then you come at whatever intervals they've decided for an infusion of it. And again, it, the there's a lot more information now available on mistletoe therapy. Perhaps it is indeed something that we can integrate. I tend to think of it as its own chemotherapy. And I say to people, if what you feel in terms of your inner wisdom about this particular cancer that you're dealing with is that radiation and any cancer that's human papillomavirus related is really sensitive to radiation. HPV cancers, and we get them in the throat, get them in the cervix, and he colorectal too, right? And the colorectal and the throat ones are more deadly because they're not being tested for it, right? But they're just as prevalent as the cervical ones, and radiation is considered to be the cure for that. Now, they're always going to throw chemotherapy in on top of it. And what I suggested to Isaac, who said, no, I'm doing the chemo, I said, don't do the chemo. Right. Do do mistletoe instead. Choose mistletoe as your chemotherapy. And he said, no, I'm, I'm going to do whatever. And it was interesting because he had a very good uh, chemotherapeutic oncologist. He's an artist. And he said, I don't care what else you mess up in my body, but you can't, I cannot lose one centimeter of fine motor control. He says, I don't care if you hurt my heart. I don't care if you hurt my lungs. But you, but you cannot leave me with any kind of tremor. And some chemotherapies will. Ter terrible nerve damage and terrible tremors. And he said, do what you want, but none of that ever, 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 ever. As a matter of fact, Isaac Abrams is the founder of the psychedelic art movement. He's a really fabulous artist. So, hmm, right? The third notable plant that's used as chemotherapy is Chelidonium magus. Celandine, C-E-L-A-N-D-I-N-E. Chelidonium magus. It is a plant in the poppy family. It's a Papaveraceae. 
And if you have ever been around it, you know it because when you break the leaf, there is a yellow sap which rapidly turns orange. It's an evergreen plant. Now I've used celandine sap ever since I was introduced to it and it grows as a weed around me. It's a very common weed around me, as a matter of fact, and throughout the Northeast and all through Europe, celandine is a very common plant. And I got turned onto it as a way to diagnose skin cancer. You take that celandine sap and you put it on something that might be skin cancer, if it's skin cancer, it will absorb the celandine and turn black. If it's not skin cancer, it'll just stay orange. This isn't black sap. What? This is not black salve, no, this is not black. Black salve contains an escharotic agent, an acid which will eat away the cancer. No, this is just a plant. This is a sap from a plant. You break the plant and put the sap on, wow. right? Well, somebody took it a step further. She said, okay, I saw that it turned my cancer black, so my skin cancer. She said, so I just kept applying it and, the, and it fell off. So I know now hundreds of people who have used celandine sap to rid themselves of skin cancer, to diagnose it and to rid themselves of it. In Middle Europe, they use tincture of the entire plant of celandine as chemotherapy. And they have thousands of established cases in which the celandine reversed cancer. It's considered to be pretty hard on your liver, but gee golly, chemotherapy is hard on your liver. I mean, lots of people say, oh, you can't use that herb, it's hard on your liver. I said, oh, and adriamycin isn't? What? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> they're hard on your liver. You're going to do something like this. It's going to be hard. Take care of your liver. Use an adaptogen that helps your liver, right? And of course, not that, it, that, that it's herbal chemotherapy, but the herb that's getting the most press nowadays as an herb to help reverse cancer is dandelion, right? There are studies are coming out everywhere about dandelion reversing cancer. Couldn't get any better than that, could it? My gosh. How are they using it? How are they using it in a, in a variety of ways? Dandelion is the most gracious herb I know. Any part of the dandelion harvested any day of the year and prepared in any way will make an effective remedy. From dandelion root tincture to dandelion flower fritters to dandelion wine, it's all medicinally effective. Well, usually when you hear about a study, they've taken the plant, they've dried it, they've powdered it, and they put it in capsules. You can pretty much be sure of that. But we know how to make plants even more effective than that, right? And I was uh, reading to the class the other day. Uh, I thought that this was a pretty interesting um, statement from the American Botanical Council. There was um, a study that was done and... Um, they looked at the DNA of uh, plants um, in capsules and they said, well, Chicali, most of these capsules don't even have the stated plant in them. 
And the American Botanical Council said that's not true. You have to understand that there's a relationship between the level of processing of herbal dietary supplements and the length of the DNA fragments. The more processed the ingredients are, the more fragmented the DNA becomes. As a result, DNA barcoding in a highly processed botanical results in findings that indicate the absence of DNA or finds that the plant isn't there at all. It really is. It's just too broken down for you to get. <laughs> And this statement is supposed to justify using powdered herbs in capsules. <laughs> Why is one of Susan's golden rules, no herbs in capsules, gang? Golly, I read that and I'm like, <laughs> you're gonna make that public statement? You're gonna actually admit to it? Whoa. <laughs> Anybody, any other burning question? Let me, before I ask that, let me remind you that I answer people's questions every Tuesday night on my blog talk show. Got your pens ready? Okay. 646-929-2463. Your time, 6.30 to 8.30 is my blog talk show. My time, 7.30 to 9.30. I answer questions for the first hour and a half, and then I interview some amazing person that Rebecca has found for the last half hour. So don't call at 5 of 8. Because <laughs> you're not likely to get your question answered. Right, call. You can call up to 15 minutes before the show starts and push 1, and then you're in the queue. Right, and I, will, I answer any and all questions. There's absolutely no charge for this. You have a more complicated question, and you think, eh, I don't want just, you know, like five or ten minutes on the phone. I really want to, like, work with you on this. Probably the easiest way to do this is to enroll as a correspondence course student. There's absolutely no time limit. I have correspondence course students who've been doing work with me as a correspondence course student for 20 years. It's okay. You never have to graduate. I'm 10. 10, right. You never have to. It's okay. There's no requirement to leave, right? And every correspondence course comes with three hours of my time. You can call me up every month and talk for 10 minutes, for an hour, for whatever you want, until your three hours is used up. Right? And I say call, because if you want me to write out an answer, you know what? It takes a lot longer than talking. I can talk much faster than I can write. So those are two really good ways, and I think we might have time for a question or two before we sing our final song. Way in the back. I'm sorry? Tuesday. 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 Tuesday evening. Thank you. What's your number one best infusion for somebody who's going through chemotherapy? Number one choice. I use a rotation of five infusions. I don't see, it's kind of like saying to me, what would be the best fruit for somebody going through radiation to eat? Well, that's kind of a weird question. <laughs> Because if we just do one thing, we're human beings, we get bored. We get bored. What I have found, and this has been quite amazing to see, is that some of the people I'm working with who are doing chemotherapy, who are doing radiation, they get to the point in their treatment where they can't eat anything green. It's like their ability to deal with green is gone. And then they start craving sugar. The gut right? Yes. Because their gut flora has been totaled out and they can't digest the greens anymore. And they can't take it. I mean, they say that uh, uh, I, uh, 
Oh. Yeah, they say, I see my hand taking it away. I'm going, no, in your mouth. And my hand is going, no, 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 you can't do this, right? So sometimes during treatment, you just have to let go of that and say, well, maybe green tea gelato. Green tea gelato goes down almost for everybody, no matter where they are in their treatment. <laughs> so you have to be really creative, right? And then once it's done, the sugar craving, and I say, use honey. Use honey. You really want sweet, so just put honey in everything. It's good. Get yourself some honey, right? And then once it's done, then bring those greens back as soon as you can. But each one of those nourishing herbal infusions, stinging nettle, builds adrenal strength and gives you tremendous energy. People who are doing radiation therapy, which is known to make people really tired, they say that so long as they can drink their nettle infusion, they're not tired at all. Then, they, then, they, then I say, well, I hope you've been doing the ginseng too, because the ginseng will carry you through the areas where you can't do the nettle. All right. Red clover in the P&B family, giving us all that wonderful stuff. I say that red clover basically builds quality of life in your body. Right, linden flower. As far as I'm concerned, the world's best anti-inflammatory. Far better than turmeric for North American bodies. Way, way, way better than turmeric, and so much tastier. And you can grow it. You don't have to buy it from some foreign place, uh, and it doesn't stain your kitchen counter. <laughs> oh, I was, I was in turmeric users here. Yes, indeed. Ah. It never comes out. <laughs> so basically, if you're going to use turmeric at all, it should be cooked in ghee and then eaten with food or put into hot milk. The I find that especially in North American bodies, unless turmeric comes into the body with a substantial amount of fat, it's just going to go right out. It's not going to do anything at all. all right, but linden, how nice. All right, wonderful anti-inflammatory. Right, um, comfrey leaf. Comfrey leaf, as I always say, does nothing but increase the strength and flexibility of your skin, your muscles, your tendons, your ligaments, your bones, and the mucous surfaces of the respiratory, digestive, and reproductive systems. Other than that, comfrey does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're so used to herbs. It impacts your liver, has an effect on your heart, does this for you. Comfrey does not affect any of those organs. It's kind of an organless herb. All right. My sweetheart loves comfrey infusion. Now let's, let's do the math on this. Okay. So I rotate through five herbs, 30 days in a month. So that means I'm drinking a quarter a day. So that means every month I'm drinking six quarts of comfrey times 12 is 72 quarts of comfrey a year. Comfrey leaf infusion that I'm drinking, right? If that were 80 divided by four, that's 20 gallons. That's close to 20 gallons of comfrey leaf infusion that I'm drinking a year. My sweetheart loves comfrey, and he will usually drink 50% more than I do. So he's drinking about 30 gallons of comfrey leaf infusion a year. He takes medications to help him deal with the stents that he has to keep the blood flowing to his heart. He is the oldest known male member of his family. There's no other man in his family who's lived beyond the age of 55, and he's my age, 73. 
Thank you, Modern Medicine, for the help there. And so occasionally they test his liver to see how his liver is doing with the drugs that they're giving him. And the last time he had his liver tested, which was two years ago, they said, your liver is functioning at the top range for a person your age. As a matter of fact, it's functioning at the top range for a person 10 years younger than you. So if anybody has told you that comfrey injures your liver, I am here to tell you, ain't true. Simply not true at all. Let me put it this way. I have one child, a daughter. She has one child. When she was pregnant, with my blessing, she drank as much comfrey leaf infusion as she could because she was one of those women who got that close to menopause and said, oh, have I forgotten something? Oh, child. <laughs> and you know, those tissues down there, they get a little stiff by that age. So I'm saying, come free. And she's saying, yeah, come free, come free, come free. Get it strong, get it flexible, right? Would I have encouraged her and supported her in drinking comfrey with the only grandchild that I was ever likely to have if I thought there was any problem with it? Absolutely not. And she continued to drink that, not only through her pregnancy, but through her lactation. My, my ideal is a quart of infusion a day for anybody, two quarts a day if you're pregnant, three quarts a day when you're lactating. And the baby goes from breast to infusion. And they drink all of them and they love them. And the babies that were went from breast to infusion and come to my house, the first thing they say is, what infusion are we drinking today? They know them by name, they know them by taste, and they know which ones they like. What have we left off? Oat straw? Yes. Oat straw, the herb of <gasps> sex. <laughs> Avena is considered the world's best sexual tonic. Or as a woman in Southern California told, told me notably, she said, you know, Susan, I got to menopause and my libido went on vacation. Mm -hmm. She said, and then down there, it got so dry. I thought it was a desert with sand dunes and camels. <laughs> she said, then I bought your book on menopause. She said, and I started reading and that oat straw, that looked just like the, the infusion that I needed. I started drinking oat straw infusion. She said, and I got to tell you, my libido came home with company. <laughs> and down there got, well, it was an oasis with day palms and dancing girls. <laughs> Spirit of the princess, come to me in the form of a beautiful dancing green woman. Thank you, son. Spirit of the plant says, come to me in the form of a beautiful dancing green woman. Her eyes fill me with bees. Her dance fills me with bees. Her eyes fill me with bees. Her dance fills me with bees. As a small child said to me, I like that dancing green woman song, but why is she putting peas in your eyes? <laughs> Thank you, Thanks for being here.